Hi, and it's good to be back with you for If God Then What Part 2. And we're going to be doing seven like this, seven big questions. And if you weren't around last week, last week the big question we looked at was, how do you know? How do we know? And we were talking about how it was that we come to decide what's true, how you decide what to believe, and looked at the fact that actually probably it's the way we generally decide what's true is not by equations or experiments, but by looking, looking at evidence and then forming explanations. And that's where we were last week. And then this week we're going to look at another big question, how did we get here? And I guess the way of framing why that's an important question is this. There was no universe. Once upon a time there wasn't a universe. The universe didn't exist. There was no such thing as you. There was no such thing as life. But now there is a universe there is a, within which there is a planet upon which there is living things. And amongst those living things are people like you and me who think and love and laugh and make music and worship. Or you could put it perhaps a bit more like this. You, once upon a time, there was nothing. Then there became a planet or a universe with stuff in it, a planet that had rocks on it and pebbles suddenly appeared out of nowhere. I got this off Eastbourne Beach yesterday. So you have a, we have to explain the existence of pebbles from somewhere, right? Before you've got to life. Why are there rocks? Why are there things like this? And then you get, there was a long period of time where you did have pebbles, but you didn't have potatoes. You didn't have anything that was alive. You had rocks, but no, no life. So ha- you have to get from nothing to something, and then you have to get from rocks or minerals to life, And then when you've done that, you also have to think through not just how do you get pebbles and how do you get potatoes, but how do you get paintings? Where do these things come from? How do you get creativity, humanity, consciousness, worship, music, art, those sorts of things? That's another step. So you have various steps that you're trying to explain. And so each one of those things needs an explanation of some sort. And the standard answer that you probably heard from a number of people on the video was, well, the Big Bang and evolution. There were really two groups of answers on the video, weren't there? And they're the two big groups you'd get in the UK today. God, of some sort, or Big Bang and evolution. So I'd say for a moment, okay, let's, great, let's go great. Big Bang and evolution. Let's say yes to that for now. And then say, that doesn't actually help us answer the question. How did we get here? Why? Because it doesn't explain what caused the Big Bang. It doesn't explain why the Big Bang caused there to be galaxies, stars, planets, pebbles. It doesn't explain how life started, and it doesn't explain how consciousness started. So actually, even if it's true that the Big Bang, even if you say, I believe the Big Bang and evolution all the way, and some people in the room do, some don't, but even if you do, you find yourself not really able to explain any of those steps that we've just mentioned. And in that sense, it's not really enough to say, I just believe in the Big Bang and evolution. The question is, but why? Why did they lead to anything like the life that we have now and the world we have now? So as Steve said, we're going to be looking at this topic, not as we often would here, by reading the Bible and then talking about it, because a lot of people in Lewisham don't believe the Bible. I'm going to be, and actually, if you're here and you're visiting, you're really welcome. And one of the reasons we're doing it this way is to try and help you think through some of these questions for yourself as well. But that question how did we get here, is an important one for us all to ask. And funnily enough, it's a question that wouldn't have been that important 150 years ago, but it is now. In a way, 150 years ago, a lot of academic, secular-minded people could say simply, the universe has always been here. But you'll notice none of the people on the video said that. Because today, almost everybody agrees the universe has not always been here. It's come into being at some point. 
That used not to be true. A hundred years ago, people used to think, no, it, it didn't. Albert Einstein in 1916 would have been a defender of a steady state universe. He would have said it's always been here. And that was mainstream opinion a hundred years back during the middle of the First World War. And then a Belgian priest and astronomer by the name of Georges Lemaitre came up with a theory that has the most wonderful name that tragically we've lost because we've replaced it with a very dull English name. But he's French, and so he called his theory Luf Cosmique, which means the cosmic egg. And what he, met, what he said was, there was, at the beginning of all things, beginning of the universe, there was a little point, and it was like an egg because it had all the information inside it needed to form this massive universe. And at some point it went, boom, like that. And Luf Cosmique became everything that there is. And it was a wonderful theory, and unfortunately, we don't call it that now, which is a crime against language, because 30 or 40 years later, a, an astronomer was making fun of that view on the radio, and he referred to it as this Big Bang theory. So now we call it the Big Bang. I think cosmic egg is nicer. I, I want to reinstate it. That's one of my, my life goals. Um, but anyway, he said, look, that's what there was. There was this point before which nothing existed, and then suddenly, psh. And Albert Einstein said... Don't believe you. I don't think that's true. I think the universe has always been here. And George Lemaitre replied by saying, Einstein doesn't know anything about physics, which I think we'd probably agree is a little harsh. And then it was finally, about 50 years after that, people began saying, no, the, we, we've got evidence now that the universe is getting larger, which makes almost all scientists believe that the universe was once extremely small, a little singularity or little point. In other words, the fact that the universe used not to exist and now it does is largely settled by science for most people. So you have to explain how we got here in a way that you wouldn't have to if you believe the universe has always been here. Right? It's always been such things as, potato, as pebbles. It's <laughs> a very unpleasant looking potato. Always, if there have always been pebbles and always been potatoes, you don't have to explain them. But if there weren't, if once there was nothing, if 20 billion years ago there was nothing, and 15 billion years ago there was nothing, and then suddenly 13.7 billion years ago, boom, something, that needs explaining. And the two main explanations you have, if you look around, there's the God explanation and the no-God explanation. The God explanation is simple, and you heard it on some people in the video. In the beginning, God. That's how it happened. How do you believe? I believe God did it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The alternative, which you also heard on the video, is Big Bang and evolution, which, as I've said, doesn't actually cover all the things we might need to know. But the bigger answer behind it is really, well, there is no God, but everything we see is the result of impersonal, undirected forces of chance and time. And those are our options. You could say either mind created matter, or matter created mind. Those are our options in a way. God is mind creates matter. He says, let there be light. And there is. Let there be a world. And there is. Or there's matter, chance, time, and material collides with itself and over time forms things which eventually become self-replicating and eventually become alive and so on. But those are our options. Mind creates matter or matter creates mind. And I think there are four good reasons to think that the God version of that story is better than the no-God version at explaining what we know. I'm going to put the four reasons up on the screen so you see where we're going. But The first reason I think it's, it's better to believe in God than to believe in no-God when it comes to how did we get here is the existence of something from nothing. 
And this is the idea that you can go back in time 30 billion years and there's nothing, 20 billion years, nothing, 15 billion, nothing, 13.7 billion, boom, suddenly something. Why? Where does it come from? What, what causes something like that to take place? If you go with the God explanation, it's not a problem. God said, let there be lights. And there was lights. Easy, with a God. You might have other questions with belief in God, evil, suffering, or whatever, but you don't have a question, how come? Because you just say, God said, and it was. But if you have the no God explanation, it is more of a problem. Because if you don't believe in God, the sudden emergence of something out of nothing is a huge issue. Why? From where? Empowered by what? Intended by whom or what? And if you've ever seen Richard Dawkins do that thing where he tries to say, you know, well, the, the reality is that actually something can and will create itself out of nothing. If you've ever heard that statement being made or seen it written about by Lawrence Krauss or any of these guys, you'll, you'll know what I mean. It, this, it, it's assuming that people don't know the meanings of the words something and nothing will try and make it look like something can create itself out of nothing. But actually, as soon as you know what the word nothing means, you find yourself going, no, no, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even grammatically make sense, let alone physically or philosophically. If there is an all-powerful creator, something from nothing's fine. If there's not, it's a big, big question. It's a big problem, I think I would say, for that view. It's like my friend Glenn Scrivener says it like this. He says, you can choose between the virgin birth of Christ and the virgin birth of the cosmos, but you have to choose your miracle. It's a good comment because he's saying, actually, if you don't say, oh, I don't believe in the virgin birth. You know what? Actually, a lot of people do. They just believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos, like out of nowhere, suddenly, something. That's an issue. And that's one of the four reasons I think it's more likely that there is a God than that there isn't a God. Second one, the formation of order from chaos. So the idea that we now have a universe that's got a lot of order and structure and togetherness to it. You get atoms, molecules, planets, stars, galaxies. But what you started with was a chaotic mess. The Big Bang, in theory, you could have just had a bang that went and then just dissipated into nothing. And that's what you'd expect. Normally, when you see an explosion, it just dissipates and the energy escapes. Yet, for some reason, with this bang, if we believe in the Big Bang, it formed very, very complex and highly ordered systems, including galaxies, stars, and planets. So we are really, at this point, wrestling with why on earth is there such a thing as a pebble? Why is there such a thing as a rock? Why does that, why when you get a bang, does it not just all escape into energy? Why do we end up with matter forming like it does? Here's a quote from uh, Francis Collins, who was the guy who headed up the Human Genome Project. So in other words, he knows more about science than any of us, I expect. Um, and then he went off to work for Barack Obama. And uh, he's a seriously clever guy. This is his explanation of why order from chaos is a, a reason to prefer belief in God. Uh, to, to unbelief in God. He says this, he says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants or numbers that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe couldn't have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. Right, now, leave people out for a moment. What he's saying is the very formation of a physical world in which there is such a thing as a star or a pebble is itself astonishingly unlikely if it's in no way been orchestrated by a creator. And here's the way I like to put it. 
I'm, I'm responsible for the formation of the universe, and I'm going to do it by chance, and I'm going to do it playing a game of galactic roulette. Right? I have 15 huge roulette wheels. Imagine them, if you would, all in a line, and they've all got a million numbers on each one. And I go up to the first one, and this, this roulette wheel with a million numbers represents, say, the strong nuclear constant that has to be right for the universe to form. That's what Collins is saying. And so I go, shoom, and I spit the little ball onto it. Yes! One in a million shot. Mum, it's amazing. It landed on the right one. The universe is still on track to exist. Great. Okay, good son. Don't waste time talking to me. Get on with it. So I go on to the next one. She would have said that in this situation. And I go on to the second one. The spinning one. Shum. And this is the weak nuclear constant. Done it again. One in a million. One in a million. This is a great day. I should, at the end of this, I should go and play for some money or something because this is going very well. Third one, another physical advance. Fourth one, shum. Fifth one, shum. Sixth one, shum. And they all work. And then I get to the 15th one. And what Collins didn't actually mention, but is nevertheless true, is that the last, say, the last number is not a one in a million. It's not even one in a million million. It's one in 10 to the power 60. It's got, in other words, it's 10 with... Uh, one with 60 noughts after it, numbers on this massive wheel. So it's the size of the solar system, or something like that. And I come up to this final wheel, and I throw the ball on. Yes! And then it goes, no, the universe is destroyed, and the motorways are flying through the air and colliding with each other, bursting into flames, and McDonald signs crashing into cars, and the oceans are boiling, and the mountains are being hoovered up, and the whole universe implodes. And I'm like, Mum, gutted. I just was so close. Now, back to the beginning, start again. That's the kind of odds we're talking when we're looking at order, the order of there being pebbles or stars or rocks even forming in the universe, let alone forming living creatures. And that's so, such a big stretch that Francis Collins said, it looks like it knew we were coming. And he believes in God. And he believes in the Bible as well. Now this is a, a separate quote from a guy called John Polkinghorne. That's if you want your child to be a, a master of Queen's College, Cambridge, and fellow of the Royal Society, just christen them Sir John Polkinghorne. I'm sure it's going to work. Because this is what, this, what a great name that is. And this is what he says. For us to be possible requires a balance between the effects of expansion and contraction, which at a very early epoch in the universe history, the universe's history, the Planck time, has to differ from equality by no more than 1 in 10 to the power 60. The numerate will marvel at such a degree of accuracy. Right, so here's the test from John Polkinghorne. Are you right now sitting here stroking your beard going, ah, I am marvelling. I looked, looked, I'm marvelling at the person next to you. If you are, he says, you're numerate. For the non-numerate, that's the duffers amongst us. All the rest of us are going, what? I don't understand. 10 to the 60, you can can keep it. He says, for the non-numerate, I will borrow an illustration. (laughs) I'll paint you a picture from Paul Davis of what the accuracy means. He points out that it is the same as aiming at a target an inch wide, the other side of the observable universe, 20,000 million light years away, and hitting the mark. Now, I might feel slightly patronized that he doesn't think I'm numerate, but nevertheless, that that does make me marvel. I am now stroking my beard in wonder. An inch wide, right? That's staggering. And he's saying, that's, one, that's just one of these numbers. That's not all of them. One of them. One more to consider. This is the, the most improbable one of all. Sir Roger Penrose, another good name for a future prize-winning scientist. Sir Roger Penrose says this about entropy, which is the amount of disorder in the universe. What does this say about the precision involved in setting up the Big Bang? I just pause... 
Roger Penrose is not a Christian, but it's just interesting that the language of setting up the Big Bang gets used at all by a, an Oxford eminent scientist, right? I, I think that's interesting. Setting up, who's setting anything up? If, if it's just without God, what on earth, who's setting up what? Anyway, it is really very, very extraordinary. If I were to put one zero on every elementary particle in the universe, I still could not write the number down in full. In other words, these big G scientists are saying it is not likely that the guys that you saw interviewed on the street saying, that's just Big Bang and evolution, say, okay, that's fine, but what that doesn't answer is why the Big Bang led to there being a world in which pebbles are even possible, let alone living creatures. In the God version, you don't have a problem. If you have the God story, in the beginning, God. If you don't, you have huge problems to the point that most atheist scientists actually would believe in a multiverse, as in there are millions and millions of universes to help us solve the maths on this one. If you want to ask about the multiverse, you can do that in the, in the questions. Third, this one we'll do quicker. Third reason to think that the God version is a better explanation of the existence of the world than the no-God version, the existence of life from minerals, potatoes, and, like, and the like. By the way, I know that guy said, you know, amoebaisms turning into something. I know that people don't believe potatoes turned into people. I know that's not the way it works. But they're just, it's a good example. If I'd shown you an amoeba, you wouldn't have been able to see it. And you would have gone, that's a very unimpressive illustration. I'm not very impressed with that. So this is a potato as just a visual symbol of life, living matter. But evolution, you might say, well, it's all well and good. But it doesn't explain the origin of life. If anybody tells you it does... They don't, then they don't know what evolution is. Evolution is not a process that describes how life came to be. At, at most, it is an, a process that explains how simple life becomes complex life. But it doesn't explain the emergence of life in the first place. And neither does the Big Bang. Neither does any physical model that we have. Minerals, which is all you have, if you think about it, in this, in this model, billions of years ago, just have minerals, they do not randomly self-assemble into DNA and start turning into living things. Now, if there's a creator God, again, not a problem. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Not a problem if you have a creator God. If you don't have a creator God, it is a substantial problem. And the best explanation of why, my favorite one anyway, comes from two atheist polemic writers. One of them is Douglas Adams, who said it. And he was the writer of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and a really... Uh, really, really interesting, really funny guy, really interesting guy. I once had dinner with him, a very surreal experience. Me, Douglas Adams, Germaine Greer, the feminist, and then a load of other students. It was a bit of a weird, anyway, it was quite interesting, but very odd. And Douglas Adams said this thing, which his friend Richard Dawkins then quoted on the inside jacket of his book, The God Delusion. So these are two of the leading atheists of their generation, and they are making this following quote to try and say, here's why belief in God is stupid, and I think... It actually demonstrates the precise opposites. We'll read the quote. Isn't it enough to believe that a garden is beautiful without having to believe there are fairies at the bottom of it too? Right? You, you go to Smith's today, or whatever bookshop, Waterstones, and you buy a copy of The God Delusion, on the inside jacket you'll see that quote. As far as I know, it's still there. The problem is, of course, it does the exact opposite of what it's trying to communicate. Because what it says, I don't go into a garden and neither do you and think, ah, beautiful garden, there must be fairies and leprechauns and goblins. Extraneous creatures who do not need to be there for this garden to make sense. Nobody does that. But when you walk into a garden, what do you believe in? Gardeners. God 
goodness. Has anybody ever been to the Palace of Versailles and walked around and seen these stunning hedges and flower rows everywhere? And go, oh, I don't believe in gardeners. I think gardeners are the kind of thing that religious people make up as a crutch because they really want to believe that there's life after death and suffering is painful. So they invented the concept of a gardener to make themselves feel better. Pie in the sky when you die. Nobody doesn't believe in gardeners. The whole difference between a garden and a wasteland is the existence of a gardener. That's the only reason why you have a garden in the first place. So for me, the question answers itself in the opposite way to the, person, the way the person asking it intended. It does not make me believe in fairies. It makes me believe in gardeners. And that, in some ways, is a very helpful statement of the problem. As soon as you look in a world, at a world in which there are pebbles and potatoes, life from minerals, you're immediately forced to recognize, wow, there's something very... As soon as you use the word garden... It's like using the word, you know, the, the person who created or designed or set up the Big Bang. It's a word that creates other questions. Garden. Hmm. If there is something garden-like about creation, why? Who made it so? And, of course, that's a question to which the Christian has a compelling answer. But the person who doesn't believe in God, like Douglas Adams or Richard Dawkins, has a lot more of a struggle. There shouldn't be anything garden-like about the world. It should be a wilderness, a wasteland, with no purpose and design. But it isn't. And that requires an explanation. And then the fourth, so these are four reasons why I think the God version of the story is better than the no-God version. The fourth one is the emergence of consciousness or mind from matter. The emergence of thought and creativity, paintings. By the way, if you are sitting in your chair right now looking at this and thinking, how much do we pay this guy that he's got Van Gogh on the stage? This is not the Van Gogh original. I want to be very clear about that. This is a painting, a copy of Van Gogh's original by my grandmother uh, who recently died. So that, that's why I'm brandishing it. Please don't think that the... And, or even steal it. That would make me really sad, thinking that it's worth millions. It really isn't. You would just get some chipboard with my grandmother's writing on the back. Anyway, just throwing that out there. But how, how do we get creatures who do stuff like this? Right? If you have a world with potatoes or plants or even very advanced plants, I don't know what they would be. Bananas, Venus flytraps, I don't know, like advanced plants, they're never going to produce that. So how do you get consciousness? How do you get beings that are aware that they are there and aware that the world is there? And for many people, that's actually the most compelling of all four. The very fact that you and I are thinking right now, or at least I hope, indicates that there is something in the world that is not purely material. Here's why I say that. I'm making sounds, and the sounds are, atoms are colliding with each other and reaching your ears via the PA system, okay? So there is a physical process that is causing these words to get to you, in a way. But the at- atomic collisions in themselves carry no meaning to anybody. And the reason I know that is because if you don't speak English, you won't be able to understand any of them. It will convey no information, even though the physical process is exactly the same. Now, admittedly, some of you do speak English, and you're still not understanding some of the things I'm saying, and that's because I'm not doing it well, and I'm sorry about that. But let's assume that you you do. You're hearing things and thinking, no, there is something here that's different from simple physical activity. There is something that's taking place alongside and through the medium of the physical activity that is conveying more than just the collision of atoms. Because someone who only speaks Japanese would not understand what I was saying. But you do, hopefully. And that is because there is something other than simply matter in the process. It's because your mind has already been trained by lots of other experiences that these words represent certain concepts which mean certain things. And that 
thing that you're all doing right now, thinking, is itself an indicator that there is something in the universe, however small and difficult to understand, there is something in the universe that is not made of just matter. Something that is immaterial. Mind, you might even say spirit. Whatever you call it, it's not made of stuff on its own. So how do we get here? Well, there are two options. In the beginning, God or undirected, uncreated forces of chance and time. And I've said, I think there are four reasons to think that the God version of the story is more, it explains more, covers the evidence better than the no God version of the story. And those four explanations, those four reasons are something from nothing, order from chaos, life from minerals, mind from matter. Having said all of that, it actually doesn't help you very much on your quest to understand Christianity. And the reason is because an awful lot of people believe in God, and many of them don't believe that the God who did create everything, if they do believe in God, many of them don't believe that that God is good or loving, or certainly not that he's the God revealed in Father, Son, and Spirit, the God revealed in Jesus Christ, who comes to take on flesh and to be like us and suffer with us and represent us before God and die for us. And if that's not what God is like, then the fact that he created the universe might not be good news at all. It might be terrifying news to have a God who had made all things and wasn't for you and wasn't good and wasn't prepared to come and become like you and to die for you. A God who was just going to leave you to your own devices for eternity might be an evil God. Who's to say that he's not? Do you see, if you stand back and you say, oh, that's great. What did you do at church today? Oh, we talked about why there is a God. On its own, it's not enough to know that there's a God. James 1 says, even the demons believe that. That's not on its own a very big win. Lots of people in this city believe in God, but they don't think very much about God, about what kind of God he is, or if they believe in him at all, they aren't convinced that he is the God revealed definitively and beautifully in Jesus. And if you don't, then knowing there's a God doesn't do you much good. So I don't want to think, I don't want you to think that we've done any more than we have this morning. We have basically got, week two, we've got to, I think it's plausible that there is a God, and here's why. The next five weeks are going to talk about what kind of God. What does he do? What's the problem with the world? What solution is there to it? And what reasons do we have for thinking that what God is doing and what's wrong with the world might be connected? And so what? But without those weeks, we've just simply got to, oh, great, I believe the same thing as demons or the devil or everybody, most people who have been on planet Earth until 100 years ago. I believe in a God. Great. On its own, that doesn't cut it. So if you are new and you've been visiting us, I'm just so pleased you've come along to think through this stuff. If you're new to Kings or if you're not a Christian, it's just brilliant to have you here. It takes an open mind and courage to be here. And I'm really grateful that you've come to join in in this kind of thing. And in a moment, we're going to pray and just conclude the time of worship. But before we do that, we are going to take some questions. Um, We've got six, six questions. Okay, great. So we're doubling every week at the moment, which is great fun. Okay, so question one. Do you agree with Collins' belief that we evolved from early man without souls and intellect into man with a soul and in God's image? This is a huge question. So Francis Collins' model of how we came to be is effectively, he would affirm the evolutionary story from start to finish and say that God is the means by which that happened. I suspect that behind this question and and a number of other questions... And may, I don't know whether they'll come up or not, is the question about how we integrate the book of Genesis with science, effectively. And because that is a difficult thing to do very briefly, I'm going to 
point, try and point you, if I can, to a website which might magically appear, which is my blog, where I basically taught through the book of Genesis and de- dealt with that question in a lot of detail over three days in the summer, and some of the pastors here were actually there. Um, and so we spent some time, and you might disagree with the model I used to try and do it. The answer in a, in a nutshell is not quite but I don't reject all of it either. But I think you might be interested to, to look at that in a bit more detail if you're asking that question. And so I have a theology blog, and it has the, all the downloads. So if you just, would just put me and Genesis and Think Conference into that search engine, you'd find it. Um, and you might, it might be something, if you're asking that question in the first place, you may well be wanting to wrestle with it in more detail than just a 60-second soundbite. So that's, that would be my suggestion. And if you come at the end of it and go, oh, I don't agree with the way you've done it, but it's helpful to... I basically said, here are 10 models, and you've got to pick one, and Collins is here, and I'm here, and other people are there. But it might, if you're asking a question, you might find that helpful, I hope. Um, so that's the only time I'm going to ambush you with a website, but we were asked that uh, earlier on, so I thought it was helpful to put it up. How do we respond to the view that there is life on other planets when the Bible doesn't mention that? Well... We don't know yet whether there is life on other planets, but I'm going to tell you a weird story. Um, this happened to me about three months ago. I had just been interviewed, I had my, sort of my doctoral interview to see if I'd pass my doctorate. And so the guys who were examining me, there's two of them, and my supervisor and me, are sitting in a pub on the Strand. And we're just chatting about what people are researching. And one of them says, oh, we've got a colleague who's being funded by NASA to consider the theological implications of life on other planets. So what on earth are NASA doing funding theology studies? And the reason was, they said, we think that the North American Christian community is going to go absolutely postal when in 20 years' time we find life on other planets, which we think we will. And that threw me. I spent the rest of the day thinking about that, and it's probably, I'm sorry, but some of you are now going to do that as well. But they were saying, we are so confident we will find it that we're going to fund people to research the theology of it. And I thought, oh, whatever. Didn't really know what to make of it. And I, and I said, somebody said, so what do you do with that, this question? What do you do? And, and he said... I think my answer is the same as C.S. Lewis's answer, which is, if it turns out that there is life on other planets, I will simply conclude that he has been there too. Which I just thought was beautiful. I made me think, thank God for C.S. Lewis. I don't even have to worry about it now. It's just beautiful. So that's my answer, but I, only, I got it in a pub in the Strand three months ago. There you go. Next one. We're constantly reminded there is suffering as Christians. How do we explain there is an all-loving God looking out for us all? Yeah, we are going to do that in some way, that issue of suffering, evil, and the relationship to God in a lot more detail in two weeks' time, looking at the, under the title, What's Wrong with the World? So this will be a very brief answer. My, but my, in a sentence, answer to the question of suffering is always the same now. When somebody says, Why, how do we make sense of suffering? I always answer, I don't know. I don't know. And the reason I do is because I think that attempt, two things, reason, attempts to answer the question invariably involve flattening different parts of the biblical witness as if they're all suffering is accounted for by one kind of thing. And, and secondly, because the Christian doesn't say, oh, well, suffering is easy to square with the love of God, so let's just leave it there. Oh, that's not a problem. The Bible is, from beginning to end, is wrestling. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, the Bible is wrestling with that question. How do we make sense? In lots of different ways, with very different voices over a long period of time. How do we get our heads around evil and love in God? I don't get it. And I think the best position for a Christian to have, in a nutshell, to say why suffering if God is love is to say, I don't know. Now, we will look more at that. Believe me, that's not the only thing there is to say. I don't think it disproves God at all. I just think it means we have to be prepared to say there are things I don't understand, and this is one of them. 
And there are a lot of far more bad answers to that question than good ones. But we will, as I say, come back to it in a bit more, bit more detail in a couple of weeks. I hope that's okay for now. It's a, that's the biggest question there is, suffering and God. I, in, in any church, anywhere, in, anywhere I've been in the world, that's the biggest question. But, so we need to do it in a bit more detail. We will. If you argue that something out of nothing is impossible, where did God come from? Yes. Some of you have been thinking that the whole time, haven't you? Right? Well, the answer is actually bound up in just the definition of the word God. I know it sounds, like, sounds odd, but it's true. If you define the word God as Christians and theists, believers in God, typically have for the last 10,000 years, then the question doesn't actually make sense. Because the word God to a Christian like me and to many people here and to most believers in God in history means an eternal, necessary, uncreated being. As soon as you know that that's what the word God means, the question answers itself. Where did God come from? It's like saying, where did square triangles come from? Do you see what I mean? Or how do you make a square triangle? It's like, no, there's no such thing as a square triangle and the very terms mean that there is no such thing. Where did God come from? It's like, God is not the kind of entity that comes from anything. God is himself the ground of all other being. Now, obviously, you might then say, but what's to, why, why do you say that that's God, not the universe? I say it's not the universe because scientifically it seems that the universe has not begun and because religious witness, including in the Bible, is that God created. But to say where did God come from is just to use the word God as if it means a created being. But no one I know believes in a created divine being in that sense. Uh, or nobody thinks they're created anyway. So in that sense, I think the question doesn't quite make sense, even though it's often asked. I think that's just bound up with what the word God means. We done? We are done. Okay, let me just, let me, let me pray. And we're going to get the band out, and we're just going to have a, a, an opportunity to sing and respond and worship to God. Uh, so I'd just love to pray for us all as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not just God. You are not just, isn't, the Bible doesn't stop in the beginning, God. There's a lot of other pages and a lot of other revelation. And what it tells us is that you are not simply the creator. You're not just the clockmaker who wound up the world and then said, get on with it. You are the God who loves and redeems and restores. And the God who becomes like us to suffer with us and to stand alongside us and to heal us and to free us and die for us and rise again for us. And because you're that kind of God, we don't come to you today saying, how frightening that there is a God who made everything. We come to a God and say, how glorious that there is a God who made everything because he's for us he's on our side and he is committed to heal and restore this broken world we thank you that that's who you are you are indescribable you are glorious and yet at the same time you know us and you call us by name and because of those things we praise you and bless you in jesus name amen amen